This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Well, it's a very great pleasure and a very great honor uh, to introduce Michael Sandel. Professor Sandel is the Ante and Robert M. Bass Professor of Government Theory at the Harvard Law School. He has written a number of very important books about theories of justice, about the basis for a democratic and just society. His book has been translated into more than 30 languages. Uh, And today, of course, we'll be uh, talking about his most recent book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit. Professor Sandel is probably the most popular teacher at Harvard teaches a huge undergraduate course on political philosophy, ethics. Um, He also, out of that course, has created an online course, a so-called MOOC, a massive online course, uh, which has been viewed by uh, tens of millions of people. Uh, He's given lectures around the world, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, for example, in England, Sydney Opera House uh, in a major stadium in Seoul, South Korea, and and around the world. So we're extremely fortunate to have him. Professor Sandel is a kind of a rare example, a too rare example, of uh, an essential worker in academia, uh, of which we have too few. Uh, That he's he's a public philosopher, He's a philosopher who reflects very deeply on the fundamental moral principles behind our political institutions, but does so in a way that's not simply understandable to specialists in philosophy, which is what most philosophers in departments of philosophy at the university do, but in ways that are both profound and open to a general public because written in beautiful, jargon-free prose. He doesn't just look at kind of narrowly defined political issues, but tries to see how our specific troubles are linked to a broad vision of the whole, the whole society. He therefore carries out a tradition of public philosophy, which, as I said, is all too rare these days. Progenitors include figures like John Dewey in the early 20th century. And since this is the Burke lectureship in honor of Father Burke, uh, people like Father Burke himself and John Courtney Murray, the distinguished Catholic theologian whose work was the basis for the uh, documents in the Second Vatican Council. So he provides intellectual depth in some of the basic problems of our day, in the kind of depth that enables us to see the problems in a different way and gives us the hope sometimes of finding creative solutions to them. The whole purpose of his work is to uh, provide the basis for a public conversation uh, about the fundamental principles that govern our life as a political community together, a life in a democratic society. So I hope that this talk will 
provide and stimulate and provide the basis for such a conversation. And so in the last part of the talk, I hope we have a lively conversation among uh, people in this audience uh, who may agree and disagree, too, which would be fine. Uh, I and my colleague Mary Walshot, who is now emeritus uh, vice chancellor of extended studies and was the dean of our extended studies program and is also a sociologist, uh, we will kind of uh, prime the conversation for a few minutes after Professor Sandel speaks. Then we'll open it to the audience, for which I hope will be a very, very stimulating and important converse, public conversation about the situation we all share together. So, Professor Sandel, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Dick. Thanks, Professor Madsen, for that very generous but daunting introduction. <laughs> and Reverend Abdullah, members of the committee, what an honor it is to speak in the lecture series named after Father Eugene Burke, who was a storied teacher and theologian and instigator of dialogue uh, among people of different beliefs and convictions and who thought and taught and cared about the relation between religion, faith on the one hand, and also informing a pluralist society as we try to make sense of the moral predicaments that we face in public life. The talk I would like to put before you today, I suppose, is in that tradition, or at least that's what I aspire to. Our subject is the tyranny of merit, as I call it, which raises a puzzle right from the start. We commonly think of merit as a good thing, being well qualified for a job. If I need surgery, I want a well qualified surgeon to perform it. If I'm flying in an airplane, I want a well qualified pilot at the controls. That's, that's merit. And it's better, isn't it, than nepotism or corruption or prejudice in allocating jobs and social roles. So how could merit become a kind of tyranny, as I contend it has become in our society? To answer that question, let's begin with the state of our public life. For decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening poisoning our politics, setting us apart. This has partly to do, I think, with the widening inequalities of income and wealth of recent decades. But it's not only that. It has also to do with the changing attitudes towards success that have accompanied the rising inequalities. Those who've landed on top over this period of globalization have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that they therefore deserve 
the full bounty that the market bestows upon them, and by implication that those who struggle must deserve their fate as well. This way of thinking about success arises from a seemingly attractive principle. The principle is this. If everyone starts out with an equal chance, then the winners deserve their winnings. That's the principle of meritocracy. Now, in practice, we don't live up to that principle. We know that chances are not truly equal. Not everyone has an equal chance to rise. Children born to poor parents tend to stay poor when they grow up. Affluent parents pass their advantages on to their kids. At Ivy League universities, despite generous, generous financial aid policies, for example, there are more students from the top 1% than there are students from the entire bottom half of the country combined. It's not only the Ivy League. If you look at the roughly 100 or 120 most selective colleges and universities in the country, 70% of the students on, on our campuses are from the top quarter of the income scale. How many come from the bottom quarter? 3%. So part of the problem with meritocracy is that we don't live up to it. But that's not all. There's a deeper problem, which is the ideal itself is flawed. It has a dark side. The dark side is this. Meritocracy is corrosive of the common good. Here's why. It leads to hubris among the winners and to humiliation for those who lose out. It encourages the successful to inhale too deeply of their own success, to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way. And it leads them, it invites them, to look down on those less fortunate than themselves. One of the most potent sources of the backlash against elites that we've seen in our politics in recent years is the sense among many working people that elites look down on them. And this is a legitimate complaint. In fact, it's a feature, this harsh judgment. It's a feature of meritocracy that was identified from the start. The person who launched the term meritocracy into common parlance was named Michael Young. He was a British sociologist affiliated with the Labor Party. In the 1950s, he wrote a short book called The Rise of the Meritocracy. The class system in Britain was breaking down after the Second World War. Working class kids were finally getting some opportunities, not entirely shackled by the 
by their class origins, and all of that was a good thing, Michael Young wrote. But he glimpsed the dark side. He said that as meritocracy unfolds, it will, in fact, the more perfectly it unfolds, the greater will be the tendency of the winners to believe they deserve their success, and the greater will be the sense of humiliation and defeat of those who don't rise. Because they won't be able to tell themselves, well, yes, I may be stuck in a low-paying job, but that's just because the system is rigged and there's no chance to rise. That was the old kind of consolation. The ability to rail against the injustice of a system that consigned some to hard lives, lives of struggle, lack of upward mobility. But now, in so far as chances become increasingly equal to that extent, people, the winners and the losers, will take their winnings or losings as a verdict on them. And so Michael Young saw meritocracy not as an ideal, not as an aspiration, as we do. He saw it as a dystopian possibility. So much so that he predicted that in the year 2034, it was a kind of dystopian novel that in this book. In the year 2034, he, he predicted there would be a populist uprising against elites. He glimpsed the future, except that uprising arrived 18 years ahead of schedule. Now, Michael Young coined the term meritocracy. But the idea of merit, the idea that people should get what they deserve and that the universe should be organized in that way, goes back much further, which explains why this way of thinking about success exerts such a powerful hold on our moral and political imagination. The deeper source of the idea of merit, merit as deservingness, goes back to Christian debates, not about income and wealth, but about salvation. Can the faithful earn salvation through religious observance and good works? That was the question. Or is God entirely free to decide whom to save, regardless of how people live their lives? That was the question for early Christian theologians. Now, the first option seems more just, that people earn salvation. Because it rewards goodness and punishes sin. It's appealing. But theologically, it posed a problem. 
Because if God is bound to answer to our virtues and demerits, he's not omnipotent after all. If salvation is something we earn and therefore deserve, then God, God is bound to recognize our merit. Salvation becomes partly a matter of self-help, and this implies a limit to God's infinite power. And so Augustine took the view that salvation can't be a matter of merit. Doing so would deny the omnipotence of God and, Augustine thought, would undermine the significance of, of God's ultimate gift, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If human beings are so self-sufficient that they can earn salvation on their own through good works and performing sacraments, then, Augustine argued, the incarnation becomes unnecessary. Humility in the face of God's grace gives way to pride in one's own efforts. And that's what Augustine was set against. But despite his insistence on salvation by grace alone, the practices of the church brought merit back in. Rites and rituals, baptism, prayer, attending Mass, performing the sacraments. Practices like these can't persist for long without prompting a sense among the participants that God will take notice. It's not easy to sustain the belief that faithful religious observance and good works don't win God's favor or generate merit in his eyes. And so... Almost unavoidably, it seems, a theology of gratitude and grace is prone to slide toward a theology of pride and self-help. And this is what Martin Luther worried about and objected to when he launched the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation one could almost say, was born as an argument against merit, against that presumptuousness. Because Luther's case against the Catholic Church of his day, well, it was partly about the sale of indulgences, but he had a broader point, a point in line with Augustine's view, which was that salvation is wholly a matter of God's grace and can't be influenced by any effort to win God's favor, whether through paying money or through good works and the performance of rights. Luther argued we can no more pray our way into heaven than buy our way in. Election is a gift that is entirely unearned. And seeking to improve our chances by taking communion or attending Mass or otherwise trying to persuade God of our merit, that's presumptuous to the point of blasphemy. So this is Luther. He has a thoroughgoing notion of grace, as did Augustine. 
resolutely, both of them were, anti-meritocratic, vis-a-vis salvation. And yet here's the paradox. The Protestant Reformation that Luther launched would lead to the fiercely meritocratic work ethic that the Puritans and their successors would bring to America. And in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, Max Weber explained how this happened. Like Luther, John Calvin, whose theology inspired the Puritans, held that salvation was a matter of God's grace, not determined by human merit or deservingness. Who will be saved and who damned is predestined, Calvin thought, not subject to change based on how people live their lives. Even the sacraments can't help. Although they must be observed to increase the glory of God, they are not a means to the attainment of grace. Now, Calvin's doctrine of predestination created great suspense because, of course, one desperately wants to know whether you are already among the elect or the damned. But God doesn't announce this in advance. The urgency of this question led Calvinists to a certain version of the work ethic. The idea was this. Since every person is called by God to work in a vocation, working intensely in that calling is a sign of salvation. It's a sign. Now, the point of the work is not to enjoy the wealth it produces, but to glorify God, and this leads to, uh, Weber argues, work and accumulation. And that gives rise to, he argues, to capitalism. But for our purposes, for the story of merit, the significance of this drama consists in the tension that develops with the Puritans, between the tension between merit and grace. For Calvin, a lifetime of disciplined work in one's calling is not a route to salvation. It's just a way of knowing whether one is already among the elect. Remember, it's a sign of salvation, not its source. That was the theological position. But it proved difficult, if not impossible, to resist the slide. Again, this time, the slide from viewing such worldly activity as a sign of election to viewing it as a source. Psychologically, this is understandable. It's hard to bear the notion that God will take no notice of faithful work that increases his glory. Once I'm encouraged to infer from my good works that I'm among the elect, it's hard to resist the thought that my good works have somehow contributed to my election. Theologically, the notion of salvation by works, a meritocratic idea, was already present deeper in the background 
in the Catholic emphasis on rites and sacraments, and also in the Jewish notion of winning God's favor by observing the law and upholding the ethical precepts of the Sinai Covenant. So it's very hard for a thoroughgoing ethic of grace to keep convictions about marriage entirely at bay. As the Calvinist notion of work and a calling evolved into the Puritan work ethic, it was hard to resist its meritocratic implication that salvation is earned and that work is a source, not merely a sign of salvation. The Calvinist doctrine of predestination combined with the idea that the elect must prove their election through work and a calling leads to the idea that worldly success is a pretty good indication of who is destined for salvation. Proving one state of grace through worldly activity, as in the Protestant work ethic, brings meritocracy back in. And it brings it in, according to Weber, with its harsh implications as well. Because the spiritual aristocracy of the elect, confident of their election, looked down with disdain, Weber tells us, on those apparently destined for damnation. Here, Weber glimpses what I would call an early version of meritocratic hubris. Quote, the consciousness of divine grace of the elect and holy was accompanied, this is Weber, by an attitude toward the sin of one's neighbor, not of sympathetic understanding, based on consciousness of one's own weakness, but of hatred and contempt for him as an enemy of God bearing the signs of eternal damnation. So the Protestant ethic not only gives rise to the spirit of capitalism, it also promotes an ethic of self-help and responsibility for one's fate congenial to meritocratic ways of thinking. And this ethic unleashes a torrent of anxious, energetic striving that generates great wealth, but also uh, reveals the dark side of responsibility and self-making. The humility prompted by helplessness in the face of grace, the traditional view, gives way to the hubris prompted by belief in one's own merit. So that's the background to our almost irresistible conviction that worldly success is a mark of moral deservingness. For Luther, Calvin, and the Puritans, debates about merit were about salvation. For us, debates about merit are about worldly success. Do the successful earn and therefore deserve their success? Or is prosperity due to factors beyond our control? On the face of it, these debates would seem to have little in common. One is religious, the other secular. 
But on closer inspection, the meritocracy of our day bears the mark of the theological contest from which it emerged. The Protestant work ethic began as a tense dialectic of grace and merit, helplessness and self-help. In the end, merit drove out grace. The ethic of mastery and self-making overwhelmed the ethic of gratitude and humility. Working and striving became imperatives of their own, detached from the Calvinist notion of predestination and the anxious search for a sign of salvation. Now, it's tempting to attribute the triumph of mastery and merit to the secular bent of our time. One might think, as faith in God recedes, confidence in human agency gathers force. The more we conceive ourselves as self-made and self-sufficient, the less reason we have to feel indebted or grateful for our success. But even today, our attitudes towards success are not as independent as pro of providential faith as we sometimes think. The notion that we are free human agents capable of succeeding by our own effort, that's one aspect of meritocracy. Equally important is this idea of deservingness. This triumphalist aspect of meritocracy is what generates the hubris among the winners and humiliation among the, uh, the losers. And it reflects, even in our more secular age, a residual providential faith that persists in the moral vocabularies of our society. Weber, Weber put it this way, writing about the Puritans, but think how readily it applies to us. The fortunate person is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate, Weber observed. Beyond this, he needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it, and above all, that he deserves it in comparison with others. He wishes to be allowed the belief that the less fortunate also merely experience their due. Well, this was, this is eerily familiar, isn't it? And it brings us to the tyranny of merit. The tyranny of merit arises from this impulse that Weber describes. Today's secular meritocratic order moralizes success in ways that echo this earlier providential faith. Although the successful don't see themselves as owing their power and wealth to divine intervention, they see themselves as rising thanks to their own effort and hard work, they, they I mean we, not just they, we often fall into the conviction 
that success reflects virtue. The rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. This triumphalist aspect of meritocracy is a kind of providentialism without God, or at least without a God who intervenes in human affairs. The successful make it on their own, but their success attests to their virtue. That's the the key similarity. And this way of thinking heightens the moral stakes of economic competition because it sanctifies the winners and denigrates the losers. So all of this is, in a way, deeply recognizable. Now, let's bring the story up to the last few decades. Meritocracy in our time, as a political project, found expression in a familiar slogan. We've heard it innumerable times across the political spectrum. The slogan that says everybody should be able to rise as far as their efforts and talents will take them. Who could disagree? In recent years, politicians of both parties have reiterated this slogan to the point of incantation. Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, Marco Rubio among Republicans, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton among Democrats have all invoked this slogan. I call it the rhetoric of rising. And it does have a certain egalitarian ring because it emphasizes the importance of removing barriers to achievement. The slogan often has this preface, whatever your family background or class or race or ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation, you too should be able to rise as far as your talents will take you. But despite its seemingly egalitarian bent, the rhetoric of rising entrenched rather than challenged inequalities of income and wealth. It didn't propose to alleviate these inequalities by reconsidering the economic policies that produced them. Instead, the rhetoric of rising offered a workaround. The workaround was individual upward mobility through higher education. To workers frustrated by stagnant wages and the outsourcing of jobs to low-wage countries, political elites of the 1990s and 2000s offered some bracing advice. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. How often did we hear those slogans, those mantras? The elites, Democrats and Republicans alike, who delivered this message failed to notice the implicit insult it conveyed. The insult was this. If you didn't go to college, 
And if you're not flourishing in the new economy, your failure must be your fault. We warned you, we told you what would be necessary to flourish in the new economy. So it's no wonder that many working people turned against meritocratic elites. There's a further problem with this workaround solution to inequality. Those of us who spend our days in the company of the credentialed can easily forget this simple fact. Most of our fellow citizens do not have a four-year college degree. More than 60% do not. So it's folly to create an economy that makes a university diploma a necessary condition for dignified work and a decent life. Elites over the last four decades have so valorized a college degree, both as an avenue for advancement and as a basis for social esteem, that they have difficulty understanding the hubris a meritocracy can generate and the harsh judgment it imposes on those who haven't gone to college. Such attitudes fueled the resentment against elites that Donald Trump in 2016 was able to exploit. So that's how the tyranny of merit comes to play a part in our current politics. In fact, in, in the, the deeply polarized politics that we've been experiencing in recent years. Well, suppose, now not everyone here may agree with this diagnosis, and we can discuss it, uh, see what people think. But even if you find this diagnosis plausible, there remains a further question. If meritocratic attitudes towards success have deepened the divide between winners and losers, if individual upward mobility through a higher education is too feeble a response to the inequalities that the era of globalization produced, if the rhetoric of rising has become, for many, less a promise than a taunt, what is the alternative? What should we do instead? Let me try to make a few suggestions <laughs> along these lines, and then we'll see, see what people think. We should begin by acknowledging that mobility, individual upward mobility, cannot compensate for inequality. Any serious response to the gap between rich and poor must reckon directly with inequalities of power and wealth rather than focus only on the project of helping people scramble up a ladder whose rungs grow further and further apart. But this means we need to shift the terms of public discourse. Broadly speaking, 
It means we should focus less on arming people for meritocratic competition and more on affirming the dignity of work. We should ask what policies would enable uh, and ensure that Americans who don't inhabit the privileged ranks of the professional classes can find work that enables them to support a family, contribute to their community, and win social recognition for doing so. This is what I mean by putting the dignity of work at the center of our political agenda. It's not as easy as it might seem. Nobody in politics is going to declare himself or herself against the dignity of work. That's not the problem. People of various ideological persuasions will hold competing notions of what it means for a society to respect the dignity of work. And that's to be expected. But here's what's difficult. Thinking through what it means to honor the dignity of work would force us to confront moral and political questions we otherwise evade, questions that lurk unaddressed beneath the surface of our present discontents. And the most central question we need to answer if we're to figure out what counts as renewing and affirming the dignity of work is this. What counts as a valuable contribution to the common good? And we can't simply assume that markets will answer that question for us. It's tempting to assume. We often do fall into the assumption of believing that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But if that were true, well, that can't be true. Because if it were true, then we would be committed to the idea that the contribution, let's say, of hedge fund managers or of successful casino moguls that the value of their contribution to the economy and the common good is a thousand times greater than the contribution of a nurse caring for COVID patients or than your best, most inspiring high school teacher. And all but the most determined libertarians would be hard-pressed to make that claim. So there is a difference. It's an open question whether the money people make in the market captures or corresponds to the value of their contribution to the economy and the common good. So a political agenda focused on the dignity of work has to bring into public debate that hard question. Now, why is it so hard? It's tempting 
to do, as we have done in recent decades, to outsource that moral judgment about social value to markets. Not only because markets seem to generate affluence and prosperity, there's a deeper appeal of this outsourcing maneuver. Markets seem to spare us the need in pluralist societies to engage in messy, contentious debates about how to value the various goods and services and contributions that different people provide. Because to embroil ourselves in that question, what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good, requires us to articulate and argue about and debate and defend and to reason about competing conceptions of the good life. How else can we know what counts as a truly valuable contribution? But here is a worry, it's a deep liberal worry, broadly speaking, that in a pluralist society, it's risky to embroil ourselves in debates about competing conceptions of the good and what's truly of value. But I'm suggesting we can't avoid those debates. We need a morally more robust kind of public discourse than the kind to which we've become accustomed. Because otherwise, it's not as though there is a purely neutral way of deciding this question. Otherwise, markets will decide these questions for us. We can speak, if people are interested afterwards, in some more concrete examples of what it would mean to put the dignity of work at the center of our political aspiration. But I would like to conclude at least these opening remarks by describing something else we need to change in the shape of our public life if we are to seriously address not only economic inequality, but also inequalities of social recognition and esteem. Because if I'm right about the harsh consequences of meritocratic attitudes towards success, then the, the deepest, most galling form of inequality is not about unequal purchasing power. It's about unequal social recognition and esteem. And one of the obstacles to overcoming that inequality is that these days, as inequality has deepened, we have within civil society fewer and fewer common places and public spaces that gather people together from different walks of life, from different backgrounds of class and religion and race and ethnicity. 
those who were affluent, and those who were of modest means, increasingly live separate lives. This is the most corrosive effect of inequality on the fabric of our social life over the past four decades, roughly speaking. We send our kids to different schools. We live and work and shop in different places. And this isn't good for democracy. Democracy... Democracy does not require perfect equality, but it does require that people of different backgrounds and opinions and beliefs encounter one another, bump up against one another in the course of our everyday lives. Because this is how we learn to negotiate and to abide our differences. And this is how we come to care for the common good. These class-mixing institutions and common spaces have atrophied, partly as a result of the inequality of recent decades. And we need to start deliberately setting about rebuilding them. And I was inspired in thinking about this by something I read when I was trying to understand whether criticizing meritocracy and individual upward mobility as the primary political projects would put me at odds with the American dream. Because we often think that the American dream is precisely about individual upward mobility, about the ability to rise whatever your background, as far as your efforts and talents will take you. Isn't that the American dream? Only in part. The American dream, the term was coined by a writer in the 1930s, James Truslow Adams. And he did talk about a social order, wrote about a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are capable and be recognized by others for what they are regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. Mobility is part of it, but it's not individual mobility only. Because when I went back and read the book that James Truslow Adams uh, wrote when he coined this term, it turns out that the dream he had in mind was not only about moving up. It was about achieving a broad democratic equality of condition. As an example, he pointed to the U.S. Library of Congress a place of public learning that drew Americans, he said, from all walks of life. Here's how he described it. As one looks down on the general reading room, which alone contains 10,000 volumes, which may be read without even the asking, one sees the seats filled with silent readers, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, the executive and the laborer, the general and the private, the noted scholar 
and the schoolboy, all reading at their own library provided by their own democracy. Adams considered this scene to be what he called a perfect working out in a concrete example of the American dream. The means provided by the accumulated resources of the people themselves and a public intelligent enough to use them. And then he said, if this example could be carried out in all departments of our national life, the American dream would become an abiding reality. Merit. Merit began its career as the empowering idea that we can, through work and faith, bend God's grace in our favor. The secular version of this idea, made for an exhilarating promise of individual freedom, our fate is in our hands, we can make it if we try. But this vision of freedom is flawed. And it's also at odds with a healthy democracy. The meritocratic conviction that people deserve whatever riches the market bestows on their talents makes solidarity an almost impossible project. For why do the successful owe anything to the less advantaged members of our society? The answer to this question depends on recognizing that for all our striving, we are not self-made and self-sufficient. Finding ourselves in a society that happens to prize our talents, that's our good fortune, not our due. A lively sense of the contingency of our lot, on the other hand, can inspire a certain humility. There, but for the grace of God or the accident of birth or the mystery of fate, go I. That could be me. This spirit of humility is the civic virtue we need now. It's the beginning of the way back from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. It points beyond the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous, more generous public life. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very, very much for such a stimulating talk that really forces us to think deeply uh, about our own lives, indeed about the mission of this place where we are, this university. Um, just to get the conversation started, as a professor, uh, let me start with more abstract and get down to, uh, you know, more concrete. So let me start with a philosophical question. Uh, what is the common good? And how do we define the common good? Jacques Maritain, the Thomist philosopher, you know, said the common good is the sum total of all the virtues, values, uh, uh, habits, institutions that make a society uh, function properly together. Okay? Uh, 
But the idea comes from Thomas Aquinas, who basically defined it in terms of a hierarchical society. The common good basically is uh, respect your superiors. You know, uh, people at the very, very top status or got their position by, by God. And you should be satisfied if you're in a lower position. Uh, obey them. The pre- people above should, you know, in a paternalistic way, um, take care of you, and so forth, all the way down to the slaves who, who are part of this process. So uh, that's a non-starter nowadays, right? People don't can't believe in this hierarchical kind of order that's defined by God. In the past, it was a church who who defined what the common good was, right, and how people should act according to their various stations in life. Uh, but now we see ourselves in a condition as equal in terms of hierarchy, not in terms of wealth and power, certainly. Uh, and we feel we all should contribute some, we all should define what this common good is. But how do you define what the common good is, the good in common? Uh, through public conversation, but in a situation in which, you know, there are alternative facts, uh, people at different levels, you know, talk and reason in a different way, how can a conversation take place that defines what the common good is? There are in law schools, Harvard probably, right, there's these new young common good constitutionalists, right, who say that originalism is too not conservative enough, right? And we have to, because if you let people decide together what it is, they're going to say people should have rights of abortion and blah, blah, blah. So therefore, it has to be imposed by wise people at the top, right? Uh, we want to go there. Uh, how, how is a democratic common good going to be arrived at? One way of thinking about the common good, perhaps the most familiar way these days, is that the common good is the summing up of individual wants, preferences, and desires. And this way of thinking about the common good is it's familiar to anyone who's taken an introductory economics course because it's, it's a utilitarian conception of the common good. A community is the sum of the individual members who comprise it. And the common good is the sum of what they want as individuals. It's an aggregative, or one could also say a consumerist conception of the common good. Maximizing consumer welfare. It's a utilitarian idea of the common good. It's deficient for at least one reason which is there's no reason to assume that the preferences, the wants, the subjective desires we have at any given moment are good or worthy or virtuous or admirable or worth pursuing or satisfying, even as individuals. Uh, as we tr- aspire to educate, our, to educate ourselves, or to improve ourselves, or to raise our children. A lot of that is about reflecting on the adequacy of the de facto preferences we have and, and 
trying to figure out whether we can improve them or whether some of them need to be reconsidered through deliberation and experience and reflection. And thinking about a society, the same question arises. The purely economistic, utilitarian way of thinking about the common good, the aggregative way, gives up from the start on the whole project that we can learn anything from one another by deliberating with one another, which leads to uh, the answer I would give directly to your question. The common good consists in, well, it's a mode of life that enables us to reflect critically on our wants, desires, preferences, interests, aims, And to do so in the company of others, friends, family, fellow citizens, who can challenge us to maybe rethink some of the preferences that we start out with. And Aristotle's idea of the common good, which is one that I'm indebted to, is what might be called a a civic as against a consumerist conception of the common good. It's also an educative conception of the common good because it sees our common life as, ideally at least, educative. We learn from one another when we deliberate about public purposes and ends. So it's this Aristotelian conception of the common good that I think offers a corrective to the economistic or the consumerist or utilitarian. There are three insults one can apply to it. Um, conception. Is that all right? It's, you still have to do some more work on this, but that's fine. Okay? So I'm, I'm the pragmatist on the stage. And? We've just come through covid You were described, and I share Dick's admiration of you, as an essential worker. I love love that. In an academic context. (laughs) What have we experienced in the last three years, two and a half years? Our dependence as individuals, families, neighborhoods, and communities on essential people, most of whom are not college graduates. The sewage backing up in my bathtub, the need for care for an aging mother, the teachers who learn to teach online, so children and grandchildren, all of the sort of underappreciated, non-esteemed workers, poorly compensated workers were essential to our living through this period. Right. I don't want to make a speech. I really do have a question. I love it, though. I I love it. But but the question is, do you think this collective experience that we've had in this country may open us to a richer conversation about what truly is the common good moving forward? In the midst of the height of the COVID pandemic, I hoped so and thought Mm -hmm. maybe, Mary, Mm -hmm. because just as you say, the the inequality, well, the pandemic did not so much produce 
inequality as no, highlighted no, no, and dramatized it, the inequalities that already it. existed. It yes, it, it yeah. surfaced it. Most vividly in the divide between those of us with the luxury of working at home and having meetings on Zoom and teaching on Zoom, and those of our fellow citizens who either lost their jobs or who, in order to perform their jobs, had to expose themselves to risks on behalf of the rest of us. And we did have a glimmer of appreciation. We couldn't help but notice that the workers on whom, that workers we often overlook were workers on whom we most deeply depended. Not only the nurses and, of course, the teachers, but delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, home health care providers. Mm-hmm. And these were not the best paid or most honored workers in our society. And just as you say, Mary, we, during the pandemic for a time, we be- began calling them essential workers and even sometimes to applaud for them at the end of the day. This could have been And I thought maybe it could provide an opening for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of the work they do. But I'm afraid for the most part that moment has passed without leading us to uh, a a full appreciation and a tangible uh, recognition of essential workers. I, in part, there are, there are still some hints and glimmers and possibilities. The uh, attention to the minimum wages in some states, uh, though not at the federal level, um, that got some attention. Here's another example. Just recently, it may seem like a small thing, but I think it's consequential from this point of view. Have you noticed that a number of companies and some state governments, you know what I'm going to say? I know where you're going, yes. Have have prohibited, well, in the case of state governments, they said we're no longer going to require, just reflexively, a college degree for a whole raft of jobs that can be performed very well by people, maybe with certain specialized training, but who don't need a college degree to perform them. Maryland has done this. Um, And a number of companies Mm -hmm. have reevaluated this ritualistic job qualification of a a four-year degree for many jobs that can be performed well by workers who don't have that. I think this is a step in the right direction, though it seems small. Uh, Here's another very small step, but it's emblematic of what could be a broader agenda. I was talking to someone who's in the state legislature in New Hampshire. He's also a political philosopher and once upon a time was my PhD student, but he, in addition to teaching at Dartmouth, he got himself elected to the New Hampshire legislature. And he said, you know, we are about to pass legislation that requires uh, employers to tell their workers 
I don't know if it's 72 hours in advance or at the beginning of the week, when they have to show up to work. Because what's happening now in many jobs is that workers are told what their shifts will be the night before. Talk about the dignity of work, to say nothing of the disruption of family life and personal life. It seems very small. It operates beneath the radar screen of grand policy pronouncements you know, in, in, in the federal government. That's another example. And uh, if, if we want to look at bigger policy level, one suggestion that I have in, in making the book is, and I'm far from the only one to suggest this, we should at least debate politically the question, why is it that we tax earnings from work at a higher rate than we tax earnings from capital gains and dividends and interest. Why do we do that? Can't we at least debate that? And what does that say about the dignity of work? So I'd like to offer another indicator. Yeah. How many people in this room would be delighted if their daughter came home from high school and said, I want to be a welder? I don't want to go to college. I want to build solar panels because I care about the environment. Or I want to be a pipe fitter. I want to work in biological alternative energy systems. And there are a lot more jobs for pipe fitters than for PhD biologists. And most of us would be crestfallen. So I think there's a deep cultural issue here it's not just systemic, it's cultural. It's both, yes. We should open it up to the audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, could I just Dick, add, please. you know, the parents, many, I mean, many parents we know and love like nothing better than to display the decal of the college or university their child attends on their car. Mm-hmm. Maybe what we need to do is find an alternative kind of car decal that could celebrate yes. the contributions. That... My child is solving climate change yeah. problems by being a welder. Okay, there you, there you, there you go. It's a way of rethinking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, um, where to start? Uh, maybe uh, comments, yeah. questions from the audience. Yeah. So you're, you're, you, you speak about a public debate. So where do you think this public debate yeah, should it's occur? Happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, are our political institutions really equipped? Uh, some of the debates that we see on TV in our legislatures don't seem to be able to capture it. Political campaigns aren't really about serious issues, it seems. So where, do, where should this political debate or where should this, th- these debates occur? Right. It's, it's a very important question. And in the current media landscape, there's no obvious answer to this question, which is part of the problem. You're right. I think that a lot of things have to change in our civil society to make a more robust public discourse of this kind possible. I think let's start with higher education. I don't think we do enough to equip our students with 
the ability to reason and argue and deliberate about big moral and civic questions. We, we need to do a better job of that in higher education. Civic education, that, by that I don't just mean how does the government work, but about reading great works of moral and political philosophy and relating them to uh, contemporary debate and equipping students with, well, there's an old-fashioned subject of rhetoric that used to be taught, but I would say rhetoric and moral and, uh, moral and civic reasoning and argument we need to do better. But I don't think we should only, that we should assume that the only place for that is in higher education. I think everyone, whether in a community college or in technical and vocational training places, in labor unions, in congregations, should have access to a robust kind of civic education to equip them, all of us, to be effective citizens. So I think we have to invent ways of taking moral and civic education out of doors, so to speak. One of the um, best examples of this historically that I've run across is the Knights of Labor, which was the most important labor union movement in the late 19th century for a time. And among their demands, in addition to wages and, uh, and hours and so on, were reading rooms in factories so that worker, working people on their breaks could read newspapers and magazines and inform themselves about public affairs and become effective citizens, not only in the workplace but also in the, the democracy. So a broad diffusion of moral and civic education, I think, is important. That's education. The media is in a, a disastrous condition from this point of view because what passes for political discourse too often consists of shouting matches or partisan food fights. And this is the traditional media has descended to this and does not really provide a meaningful forum for debate on big questions that matter. Social media is hardly better. To the contrary, social media, for the most part, depends on a business model that says, we want to capture your attention by any means necessary, however sensational and provocative and low and base, hold it for as long as possible. They call it engagement, but that's a euphemism. Engagement, true engagement, involves deliberating. The kind of engagement they trafficking, traffic in is better described as triggering or inflaming. Holding your attention for as long as possible, the better to collect more of your personal data, the better to sell you stuff. That's the business model. Well, that business model will never be conducive to a kind of social media that can 
uh, be a place for public deliberation. So we have to reinvent that, which is a big political and economic project. So those are some of the places I would start. And as for the, the traditional media, I think we have to experiment with not-for-profit modes of funding uh, media, traditional media even, um, if we're to create fora for genuine public discourse. It can be robust, it can be lively, it can be engaging uh, and hold people's attention. It need not be dry and dull and decorous. Well, a a little decorousness might not be bad, (laughs) civility at least. Uh, it can be done, but we have to reinvent these uh, these media companies and the social media companies that we've allowed to proliferate with this uh, deeply corrosive business model. So to go back to the first point about uh, working and college, and the college sticker is a symbol. I would be very happy for my kid to be a welder if my kid could afford to buy our house on a welder's salary. He never could. I would want my kid to have an equal or better life than he had growing up. So if you don't have that, you know, the rest is not going to follow. So welders do make seventy-five to 100000 a year. They can't live in La Jolla. They can't, live, they can't buy the average home in San Diego. Neither can a high school teacher or a nurse. I, I agree. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But without talking about how much money they make, yeah. the rest is just talk. Well, that's, that's why uh, it's not enough, important though it is, for parents to say, to their child, if you want to be a, a pipe fitter or a welder, you have my blessing. Parents uh, give this advice and form these judgments against the background of a society that, in terms of pay and also in terms of honor and recognition, may have may may be sending the opposite message. And uh, here's. Here's one way where we can begin to address it. An economist at Brookings uh, did a study a few years ago and found that the federal government, this was back in 2013, that the federal government spends um, each year helping people go to college and university I think it's $164 billion. And the amount it spends uh, supporting vocational and technical training was $1.1 billion, $164 billion to $1.1. Now, that's a dramatic, that's a choice. And it's a choice that carries enormous consequences for the kind of support for the training for jobs on which the majority of our fellow citizens depend. Community colleges, technical and vocational training are woefully underfunded and partly as a result underrecognized and underappreciated. Germany has a somewhat better 
way of organizing vocational training and supporting it. And the level of honor and recognition is somewhat um, greater than we accord it. But this would be one place to, to begin. Uh, not, it's, it's not a, a, enough by itself. But it's true. We have to rethink. See, the, the general point I would make is that it, we have to rethink the economy but to rethink it not only in terms of pay, important though that is, but also in terms of the economy as a system for allocating honor and recognition and social esteem. And because that's really what an economy is. Economy isn't only a system for producing goods and services and pay that corresponds to that activity. It's also a scheme of social recognition. And part of the anger and frustration and the sense of grievance that a great many working people feel, rightly, is not only have they lost their jobs, not only have wages in real terms been almost flat for four to five decades, but the the honor and recognition and respect accorded to the kind of work that working people do, the kinds of jobs we've been discussing, has become fragile and uncertain. And we, we have to take account of that. And we need a, a, a political economy that addresses uh, both pay and recognition. K-12 is preparing children for college for the most part. There's a lot of uh, evidence of that, including in the curriculum. In a society where most children will not go to college. So um, I think that creates a lot of frustration in those who do not, and also a lot of wasted time learning things that might not be um, useful for them. And... uh, I wonder how do you think, so K-12 is looking at college, how, how do you think, what, do, what should K-12 do instead if you were Secretary of Education? It should inspire um, the love of learning in the various Subjects, history, imaginative literature, um, math and science, and see where it leads. And music. Peter, can I borrow? Do you have a copy of the Tyranny of Merit here? I have a story. This this story doesn't give a an, a fully adequate answer to your question, but it's one example from my own. Uh, high school experience that came to mind when I was uh, writing about the tyranny of merit. It's about my um, high school uh, biology teacher. And let me see um, if I can find it. Well, I'll I'll start. I, I tell two anecdotes about my high school career in this respect. 
When I was in maybe eighth or ninth grade, I was in a math class, and this was a heavily tracked school. Now, tracking could be one answer to your question, but I, I'm ambivalent about the excessive tracking in schools. And partly because of personal experience, in my math class, it was, you know, it was heavily tracked. So we were always in the, it's the same kids in all, most of the classes. Not only that, the seating plan in the room was changed after each test or quiz, graded exercise. <laughs> Did anybody else have this? So the teacher, before handing back the test, would say, here's the new seating arrangement. And there, there were honors rows where you were seated in order of your grade point average as of that moment in that class. And I was not, I, w- I was not at the top of the math class. I was okay, but not, there, there were other, particularly one young woman who was a whiz at math. She usually was in the first place. And I would be maybe a contender for the fir- third or fourth <laughs> seat. But if I, I, I blew a test, you know, maybe I was in the third seat that week. And then some other, he's reading out and you have to gather up your books and say, oh, I've got to move back. <laughs> I, hope, I hope just one seat. No, no, someone else is sitting there and you've got to move back. Further. I really must have done poorly. So that bred this hyper-competitive um, unhealthy uh, <laughs> way where by the time we reached you know, the 10th and the 11th grade, we not only knew our grade point average in each class to the 10th, but everybody else's. And I had one teacher, a bio, wonderful biology teacher, who uh, noticed this and was troubled by it. And Here's the passage. I'm trying to find it. All right. My 10th grade biology teacher, um, Mr. Farnham, a wry bow-tied man whose classroom teemed with snakes, salamanders, fish, mice, and other fascinating wildlife, was troubled by our preoccupation, our obsession with grades, and how it threatened to swamp our intellectual curiosity. One day, he gave us a pop quiz. He told us to take out a piece of paper, number from 1 to 15, and answer true or false. When students complained that he had not given us any questions, (laughs) he told us to think of a statement for each question and write down whether it was true or false. Students asked anxiously whether this arbitrary quiz would be graded (laughs) and whether it would count. Yes, of course, he said. At the time, I found this an amusing, if eccentric, classroom joke. But in retrospect, I see that Mr. Farnham was trying, in his own way, to push back against the tyranny of merit. He was trying to get us to step back from the sorting and the striving long enough to marvel at the salamanders, (laughs) which is what education should be about. Well, that wonderful story, I think it's a good place to end. 
And thank, uh, you, thank, thank you, you from the bottom of our hearts. For this. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.